0: Thank you, Chuck. Well, Brian is on his way to Haiti this morning. He was delighted to know that the direction from Louisville to Haiti would go through Chicago. (laughs) And was uh, curious about that. And then to Miami and then on to Haiti. So it's going to be a long day of travel for him. Please pray for him as he travels and spends the week there teaching and preaching there. It's my honor and privilege to be able to open the word with you. And you've already begun to hear the passage that we're going to look at together today. So Matthew chapter 6 is the text we're going to be dwelling in. This month is the month of uh, of Mary and my uh, anniversary. And so we just celebrated 15 years uh, married. So that, that was uh, an exciting uh, milestone for us. In fact, one that we kind of looked at years ago thinking, well, you know, 10 is good. 10, you've gotten somewhere. But 15 sounds like you're really starting to have been married for more than a week or two. And so you're really starting to feel like you have... Uh, have been through some things. But I assure you, and this is the way we spent our anniversary, not the way we expected. Had you gone back 15 years to our wedding day and caught us on the way out of the church building that day and said, in 15 years, you're going to have seven children. that alone would have, that would have given us pause. (laughs) Six of them will be boys and one girl. You will live in Kentucky. That would not have been anything we would have considered. And uh, you will not be together on your anniversary because, Mary, you will be in Chicago being treated for your second round of breast cancer. And you will be with the kids. That that would have stunned us because that would have then said something about what 15 years was going to mean. The first passage of scripture that we began to memorize together as a married couple was this text, Matthew 6, 24-34. Now at the time, we committed it to memory because we were a poor married couple and not expecting to have anything more than, than, than the one date night a week at Chick-fil-A when we could figure out a way to get that extra money squeezed out of the budget. Uh, we have... Since those days, found so many other ways that this text enriches our life other than financial provision. Though it certainly is centered around the concept of money, even by explicit statement that you cannot serve God and money. But there's so much more involved here than just the subject of how you spend your money or whether or not you feel like you have any. This passage is about kingdoms and dominions and masters and servants. It's about who's reigning in your life. It's about where your trust and rest lie. And already in 15 years, we've had opportunities to deepen our understanding of this text. And no more significant than what brought us to that 15th anniversary contemplating what health can do to your sense of security, what manner of anxiety can creep into your heart when that which you took for granted is not just in question but under attack and even threatened. In fact, it takes circumstances like that in your life, and you have these in your own life, if you haven't, you will, to shake the things that we too often take for granted, things that we assume will be there tomorrow. And then on the other side of that, we can become so anxious over some of these things that we begin to heap up tomorrow's anxieties and the what-ifs into today. Both are addressed in this text, one more directly than the other, but both find their resolution and their rest in what Jesus teaches here in this passage from the Sermon on the Mount. (coughs) Now, there are different perspectives on how to view this sermon. This is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, classically known and for generations known as the Sermon on the Mount. Some view this as sort of the apex of the Christian life, an unachievable ideal. Some view it as a moralistic sermon, the necessary walk to demonstrate that one is truly a part of the kingdom. Somewhere in the middle seems the more appropriate interpretation. Certainly it Elevates how we walk to a high, high standard. And if you go through all the things discussed in these three chapters, there are a myriad of topics addressed, but they all center around the same nucleus. And that nucleus is all I have and all I need and all I live for is the kingdom and the King, Jesus. What is the kingdom of God? That question was asked of me many years ago when I was a pastor in Maryland. Someone came up to me just quite innocently and, and caught me off guard with what was a very good question. After a small group Bible study, she came up and said, what, what is the kingdom of God? When we're told to seek it first, what are we seeking? Well, I mustered the best answer that I could give in the moment... But I've spent the last many years contemplating that question as it continues to rebound in my mind because it's so much more than what we can lay our hands on. Certainly there is a kingdom that is present today, a universal kingdom, a kingdom in which God reigns over all, a kingdom in which he is known as creator and sustainer, and a kingdom in which we have no concern about how things are going to go. That is a real kingdom and it's a real kingdom today. But then there's this earthly kingdom that we live in, an earthly kingdom where sin has marred things, where death exists, where pain and suffering and difficulty break in. When we compare this thought of this temporary kingdom to kingdoms of the world, we've seen throughout history kingdoms rise and fall. And so we have a portrait of what will happen to this kingdom one day. We've seen great kingdoms even from the scriptures of the Egyptian kingdom and the Babylonian kingdom and the Assyrian kingdom. And think about in your history classes, if you can remember where you were in those days of of studying European history or Eastern civilization or Western civilization, many great kingdoms have risen and fallen. Even today, the great kingdom, if you will, we use that term, that we have here in this United States, this wonderful country that we live in, it will fall one day because it's a temporal kingdom. And it's a manifestation of an earthly kingdom that will give way to something that's breaking in even now, a universal kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, Christ is the ruler And the gospel is the good news to enter the kingdom. Jesus referred to it this way early in his ministry in Luke chapter 4 when he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is here. When he would be crucified and raised again on the third day, he would spend 40 days in his resurrected state basically doing a seminar on the kingdom of God. I I wish something had been recorded, and perhaps it was in earlier passages and later, but it doesn't say anything in Acts beyond that, that Jesus spent 40 days basically proving to them he truly was alive and teaching them about the kingdom. And that inspired the question that they would ask, so is now the time that this kingdom is going to be restored to Israel? You might remember his response, now is not the time and you're not the one to know what the Father has established in his time. So even then, they were looking for this kingdom to break in. And as they went out in the power of the Holy Spirit, they went out understanding that they were advancing a kingdom. Well, the way this kingdom works, at least the best that I can tell, it's an invisible kingdom with visible manifestations. And there are two primary visible manifestations, as I can understand Scripture. The first is the the dead become alive. Those who walked in darkness see a great light. The unsaved become saved. You're here likely because the kingdom of God came to bear in your life. And a light came on that you had not seen before kingdom is advancing. Or as uh, we like to hear from the movie and the book, Aslan is on the move. The kingdom of God. But there's another way that the kingdom advances and that's the way that perhaps you're most concerned about today. And that is the way the kingdom will advance in my life as new areas of my life are converted to the way of the kingdom. And the darkness is pushed back. This is a process. It's a journey that we move from a place of of an an original enlightenment. We understand that Christ is Lord and we bow our knee to Him. But then there's this territorial control, this overtaking of areas in our life as we're sanctified through the process of our life. One day it'll be complete. One day it'll be gloriously complete. In fact, I think we have a hard time not only anticipating what that will be like, but understanding how much that is to be longed for. be glad when the sin of this body will be done away with don't you find I think at some point you have found yourself frustrated with sin with seven children we're reminded often of sin but you know what often happens in the encounters with our children and Mary and I will remind ourselves of that this is this child's sin and this is where it came from I see it. I see me in this. In fact, they're great tutors for self-examination. It's sometimes very easy to become judgmental in that place and find yourself saying bizarre things like, how could you do that? Understanding that you'd have done the very same thing and worse. Or why would you do that? What's wrong with you? The same thing that's wrong with me. And there's a day coming when that's gone, that's done away with, free from sin. You know about a speech that goes something like, free at last, free at last. That will be free at last. And that will be a glorious moment. And I think it won't be until that moment that we experience, really for the first time, the true glory of what Christ has done. But until then, we have sort of one glory to another, one layer upon another layer That God works into our life through the Holy Spirit, the power of his word, and this amazing work of sanctification. This text is the middle, it's sort of the concentration point or the nucleus of these three chapters. And really the gospel when it comes to understanding how the kingdom works and is lived. And Jesus introduces it by saying, look, there's, there's no way to serve two kingdoms. You can't serve two masters. Now, to put this in context, he's just said where your treasure is, there's your heart. So he's teaching them to drill down to the middle of things. And I would ask you to do the same as I do that and, and think through where's my treasure because where, where I'm valuing things in my life is where my heart longs to be. So what do you esteem? What do you value above all else? Because there's where your heart is. And it's from that context that he says you can't serve Two Masters now, this was in the text last week as Brian preached. I understand I went to look for it i couldn 't find it online, but i 'm pretty sure he stayed on the same text. So the irony and the weirdness about this is you 've heard it, and I haven 't so i 'm trying to reference a message that you 've heard, but you can 't serve two masters it 's not just a suggestion it 's an unequivocal fact. This is what we see so easily in children and so not so easily in ourselves. In fact, especially when they're young and you begin to re-instruct over something that you've just told them not to do or told them to do, and you see the decision-making going on. There's no way to both obey and disobey. There's no way to both follow the commands of authority and not follow the commands of authority. Or follow the commands of this authority and follow the commands of that authority. It can't be done. So it's an unequivocal fact. You cannot serve two masters. Now the great lie of the deceiver is that you can. That there's a way to kind of fudge this. And I'm going to try to serve God more than I serve my own devices or the enemy of my soul. But I'm just sort of being tugged back and forth. But Jesus is making it clear. It's an on-off switch. You'll either hate one and love the other or be loyal to one and despise the other. This passage wants to show how you might be hating the wrong one and loving the wrong one. Reading in verse 24 again and then on 2:34, chapter 6. Therefore I tell you, excuse me, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, And we must be honest about ourselves. In America today, and in particular in our season of America, most of us are not too concerned about what we're going to wear or what we're going to eat. My guess is the bigger concern is which place will we eat today? And will there be a line? Or what outfit of a myriad of options might I put on tomorrow? Anxiety comes, it's over what outfit makes us look what way, rather than whether or not we have clothes. And yet, we still understand the text from the sense that we find much to be anxious about. In all of our wealth, in all of our accumulation, we still find ways to be anxious. Do we not? Can we agree on that anyway? It may be other things. It may be 401Ks or it may be savings accounts or it may be simply how to pay a particular bill. But there's a way to identify with this text on its content matter from a financial standpoint because money never seems to be enough. Do you remember when you were young? Or perhaps now you are still very young and you would just long for a minimum wage job. Of course, now minimum wage to us looks significant compared to the minimum wage that I worked for. And perhaps some of you worked for even less than I. $3.35 was a robust sum for an hour worked in my first job. That would be laughed at today. Things have changed. Some worked for less than that in your minimum wage sum. Some of you maybe worked for very little due to different circumstances, but there was a season when you thought what you're making today would have been a dream come true. I mean, generally we look back and go, wow, if I had known I'd be making this much money when I was 18, I'd I'd think I'm going to be rich. Life has a way of catching up and expenses filling out a budget of any amount. So it's not difficult to identify with the fact that a, we can lack. So the question isn't how we lack or if we lack. The question is what we do in the feeling of lacking. What do we do with that sometimes overwhelming sense of lacking. I believe there are four, at least four, but four principles here that Jesus gives that will help us turn the emptiness and the anxiety from a lack, due mainly from a misplaced priority, into the providential reality of Christ and his kingdom. So we're shifting from one kingdom to another because what Jesus is saying is where you are anxious is a demonstration of where you have had little faith, where you have misplaced your ownership of your life. Now, I have much I feel like to be anxious about and in some ways I have become an expert of anxiety because I can find things that aren't there to begin preparing for, to be anxious. So I know what the ledge feels like and know the difficulty of backing away from that and even arresting the thoughts that fill that void as I consider the what-ifs of life. So please don't hear anything that I say as something that I have learned to its perfection and I'm now heaping upon you as some some mandate. Hear us learning together at least four things from this passage to shift our affections from one master to another the first is this command is uh, not to be anxious is given three times in this text verse 25 i tell you do not be anxious about your life verse 31 therefore do not be anxious and verse 34 Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. So three times a command is given, do not be anxious, which tells me that there is, first of all, a reality of anxiety and that the attempt to store up the wrong treasure, remember that part where your treasure is, your heart will be also, that contributes to that anxiety. And then the other side of that is there is a remedy for that anxiety or it would not have been commanded to avoid it. So it has something to do with how we're heaping up treasures, what we're heaping up for. But there is an attempt to store up treasure of one kind that makes us anxious and to store up treasure of another that relieves anxiety. So drifting back those few verses before verse 25... Let's look at 19 and 20 to get the deeper context of this idea of heaping up or laying up treasure. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The recent movie, I'm still in the theaters, about Steve Jobs begins with a scene where he is standing before the Apple uh, thinkers introducing a new product. It's 2001 and it's, it's time to unveil the latest breakthrough of Apple technology. And he has it in his pocket so no one even knows, according to the scene, what it is that's coming. And he pulls out of his pocket this little device that's about the size of a cassette tape and he tells them that this is the new way to listen to music because now you can carry a thousand songs in your pocket. And he introduces the iPod that day. 2001 was the first iPod. Now 2001 has not seen that long ago and yet we are filled with pockets full of iPods and iPhones and iThings. Right, all over the place. When you think about that, in 2001, there was the introduction of this, this, this new device, this technology uh, d- breakthrough that was destroying. Remember, we, we used to have these ridiculous devices some we'd carry on our shoulder to listen to music and needed a, a wagon to pull behind us and and, and and some, you know, these things that had the ribbon in it, you know, what those things, you remember what those were called? They had little wheels that turned and you hit play and inevitably it'd get eaten all inside the machine and you have to throw everything away because you wouldn't have your cassette tape or your uh, your Walkman anymore. And then they thought it'd be brilliant to be able to carry a CD because CDs were the latest technology and you'd carry that around except you could never hear a complete song because it kept skipping and jumping every time that the earth rotated. <laughs> and so this, these, were, these were things that we were contending with in the, in the 90s, the ancient 90s we were dealing with this horrible technology. So this iPod wasn't going to skip. It was going to store more technology, more information. It was going to be the new breakthrough. And it has been. I mean, now you can carry more than a thousand songs in your pocket. Now you can not only carry the songs, but the pictures and the photos, and and you can talk on it, and you can check your email on it. But 2001, not so long ago, millions of those little devices created. And where are they now? Moth and rust have destroyed them. Thieves have broken in to steal them. And even now, the device that you carry or whatever technological treasure you, you desire or treasure or uh, cherish, it too will eventually be in the world's landfills. Because of 12 years of gathering iPods and passing them down, even with seven children, just about everybody can have a hand-me-down iPod now in our home. Just about everybody can have some kind of handheld device. Because they're so plentiful. Yet the day will come when they're all heaped up. Those treasures are fleeting. Expand the category to your first automobile. Oh, how you babied that thing! Oh, it was a piece of junk to begin with, but not to you! You took care of it, and you cleaned it, and you washed it, and you even tried to clean up the rust on it, and did everything you could to make it look great, because you treasured it, and yet now where is it today? Add that to your first home or, or clothing that was the in thing at the time. Of course, if you hang on long enough, you'll wear it again. You just got to keep the weight off. But this, it was the end thing at the time. That was the the fashion, the expensive fashion. You paid so much money for that particular shirt or, or jacket. Boy, I was in the members only generation. Some of you don't know what that is. You can Google that. Figure out what those jackets were. Or penny loafers. What a ridiculous idea to put a penny in a shoe. <laughs> All these things that were such treasures are now gone. So, Jesus is saying here, store up treasures that will last. Because anxiety is going to result from heaping up treasures that don't. So, if your heart is directed toward and poured into those treasures that moth and rust destroy, you're chasing the wind. You're grasping for things that will be gone, that will be destroyed or stolen or taken from you. So heap up that which can't be taken from you, that which is a treasure for heaven. Second principle here. The condition of anxiety, though real, is unjustified in the face of how God displays his care. The condition of anxiety is unjustified in the face of how God displays his providential care. And here's where we think about the birds and the flowers. Have yet to see a bird begging for food on the street. Have yet to see a flower naked. Not sure what that would look like, so if I saw it, I don't know that I would know that's what it was. (laughs) was watching a a time-lapse series of photos uh, of dandelions. 30 days, they spring up, flower, go to seed, and disappear. 30 days. Even for 30 days, that flower is clothed. And I love the terminology about the flowers because it says they don't toil or spin. That's a really good terminology for us because we do a lot of toiling and spinning over things like this. Yet the implication here is is that God is feeding and clothing everything around you. And aren't you of more value? When you walk out these doors this morning, when you leave here, you're going to see a field of green, perhaps some little, little spots of color. They did nothing to get that color. They did nothing to grow. They merely existed. And God clothed them. And he clothed the earth with them all over. And he even gave variations around the globe of different colors and different shapes and different sizes. And yet he clothed them all every day. The birds of, of, of who knows how many types. I was looking at, at, in particular, Palestine. What would this have meant to them? And between 350, 400 species of bird, perhaps, all of them fed with a variety of different different. Sources of food. I know some birds eat worms. Some birds eat berries. Some birds eat seed. Some birds eat mosquitoes, for that we're thankful. But they all are fed. And Jesus intends for us to be reminded every time we see the bird flitter across the backyard. Just go into lunch. No worries. Or the flowers spring up, just clothed by the Heavenly Father. We need to remind ourselves, brothers and sisters, that our Father feeds birds. That He clothes flowers and grass. And are we not of more value than they? That's Jesus' implication, from the lesser to the greater. If He does that for the lesser, will He not much more take care of you? Yes, He will. Here we need to trust. This is where the lack of faith is revealed. We need to trust the promises and providence of God. We're all here. We're all clothed, thankfully. We're in our right minds, we trust. We have had food this weekend, if not this morning, you will for lunch. He has given all that you need, and he will tomorrow as well. So then the question lies not in whether or not he will provide, but in what treasure then you will devote your energy and time. Will you expose a longing for the wrong kingdom and a longing for the wrong things by becoming anxious for them? Or will you rest in what Jesus says, if you'll trust in me, if you will seek first my kingdom, if you'll seek first this kingdom, all these things will be added icing on the cake. All of this will be added. So there's two. Two more and we close. So the command is given three times so it must be doable. It's all about what treasure you're storing up. The second is the condition of anxiety is unjustified though real unjustified in the face of how God displays his providential care. Third principle There's a contrast between those who live for the kingdom of this world and those who live for God. This contrast is given here in reference to the Gentiles. In this particular case, the reference to Gentiles is to mean those who are not a part of the kingdom of God. And so he's saying that the way that that group lives is the way of the kingdom of this world. They worry about all these things. They say, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? This is the way the Gentiles live. It should not be that way for you. The contrast to that is that while the Gentiles seek after all these things, the children of God know that their father knows their need. And I believe in many ways this is the root of anxiety. Because whether subconsciously or directly consciously, we have told ourselves, he does not know or does not care about what I lack. And it could not be a greater blasphemy of the truth. He not only knows and not only cares, but he says to us, take your anxiety and cast it upon my care. For I care for you. So let me take that too. So not only do I know, and not only do I care for you, but I am willing and able and desire to take that which you lack because of your anxiety upon myself as well. Here we need to live oriented toward God and a right view of God. This life offers many distractions. Some of them are just the nature of things. Some of them we put ourselves in front of. But there are many distractions from the idea of this kingdom principle, of this breaking in of the eternal kingdom and of who God is. But what we've got to see through in the facade of this life is there an invisible reality. There is an invisible reality that is far more true than what we see with our eyes. These are the eyes of faith that have to lay hold of this. This is the gift of the gospel, the kingdom. It lays hold of this invisible kingdom and says this is where I will stake my life. This is where I'll invest my energy and my toil and my care. I will not be distracted by the things I see around me. I will invest myself in that which I can only see by eyes of faith, lay hold of that and then his promise is that not only does he know but he will provide (laughs) for those things. They're just added to the rest of it. But to change the priority, to forsake the seeking first of God's kingdom, and instead seek first the things of this world, we don't get the benefit of the relief of anxiety and the confidence of him adding those things. This is where Paul speaks in Colossians 3 to say, if you've been raised with Christ, which you have as a believer, seek the things that are there. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Set your mind on the things above, not on things here. Think about his kingdom, his rule, his reign. Which brings us to the final principle, the fourth, that I'd like to suggest. It's impossible, as we've already said, to serve both. So the true remedy is to discern where our heart is and to turn from and to. Turn from the things of this world and to the kingdom of God. There are two accounts in Scripture where Jesus encountered someone who was struggling with money. So they're very applicable here. We have the rich young ruler who... He really thought he was, was okay. He just wanted to make sure. So he went to Jesus and said, I, I, how do I inherit eternal life? And he says, well, you need to keep the commandments. And went through several. And the rich young rich ruler says, I've done all that since my youth. And then Jesus puts his finger on the real thing. You need to sell all you have and give it to the poor. So there's this rich young ruler looking into the eyes of Jesus, contemplating which kingdom, which master, Jesus, sell all I have. All I have. Jesus wants me to forsake this to follow him. Or have this. And very simply, without any pretense, without any fanfare, he just simply turns away from the face of Jesus and walks away. The other account is of Zacchaeus. We've learned this since a little child. We've learned the little song. He climbs up in a tree. wants to see Jesus. He's too short. Jesus sees him and says, I'm coming to your house. They go to his house. Now, he's a tax collector. He is not a fond fellow. But there's been a work, some kind of change in Zacchaeus' life. And so the same type of conversation ensues between Jesus and Zacchaeus, but this time Zacchaeus takes up the, the conversation and says, "I have sold half of everything I own to give to the poor, half of everything I make so that this thing doesn't have me." And Jesus says, "Today, salvations come to your house." Zacchaeus had taken his eyes off of the treasures of this world and put them into the face of Jesus, and said, "I want you." And your kingdom, not that one. So this fourth principle is determining which kingdom you're going to follow. Are you going to take your eyes off of Jesus and follow this as the rich young ruler did? Or are you going to take your eyes off of this and place them upon Jesus? Say, I want your kingdom. One day the kingdom of God will come fully upon the kingdom of this world. It will be very clear. That this was the right kingdom, the one true kingdom all along. And it in that day will be sudden and decisive. And in that day every knee will bow, though for many too late. For some they'll still be clinging to the treasures of earth, only to realize that they have led them to their only capable end, destruction. Where not only moth and rust destroyed the treasure, But the treasure-seeker is in eternal destruction. But this day, which by God's grace is not that day, not yet, this day you can turn your eyes. This day you can know the face of the Savior. You can cast your anxieties upon him. See, selecting a kingdom is really selecting a king. What will master you? Will you be the rich young ruler who turns from the face of Jesus to the things of this world? Or will you be Zacchaeus and turn to the face of Jesus? Let's pray together.